So if you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Samuel 25. We'll be exclusively in 1 Samuel 25. Um, I have a question for you that I'd like you to just discuss with your neighbor. Today we're talking in this passage about dealing with difficult people, dealing with uh, having conflict and how to survive conflict in a, in a broken world where people are messed up and we're messed up and people have bad motives and we have bad motives. Um, how do we live out our faith? Um, with those people. So there's an objection to Christianity kind of on the topic, and here's the the question. How would you respond to this comment? So you're discussing your group, and then maybe we'll just like talk as as a big group. How do you respond to this comment that if God is real and powerful to work in people's lives, then why does the church have so many hypocrites and messed up people? So how do, you rec- how do you reconcile that in your own mind? Discuss with a partner. If God is real, if this Christianity thing's so good, if the Bible is all it's cracked up to be, then why are the people who follow this God and who read this Bible still prone to hypocrisy and, uh, and weakness? I'll give you a, man, let's do two minutes. I'll give you two minutes. Go. All right. Well, I sorry to interrupt your comments. Did, did anyone have a partner that had a brilliant comment and wants to raise their hand and volunteer your friend uh, to share? Does anyone have any? Uh, how would you respond to that to that question, that objection, that curiosity? What do you guys think? Somebody over here. We're new at this. Somebody over here. Go for it.
Yeah, well put. Well put. Anyone else from this quadrant over here? E. Salazar, what do you think? Well put. <laughs> That's great. That's super cool. Okay, any other comments? Anything where you're going like, oh, we have a different angle on this. We said it in a different way from over here. All right. Well, I, uh, I think, you know, well put. And I, heard, I even heard, I, I, what's that? Go for it. Oh, okay. So in... Yeah, well put, well put. So uh, I think the more time you spend in church, you start to realize that people are more sinful than you maybe give them credit at one point. That God is more holy and kind of more wonderful, but that people are more flawed. And, and the process of sanctification, the process of, of repenting daily uh, as a Christian is realizing that even your good deeds oftentimes have selfish motives and that sometimes your sin convinces you that you're not that bad and that people just don't understand you and that everyone else is difficult, but I've, I'm the one who's really enlightened or the one who really knows how to communicate and that sort of thing. And uh, if anything, what the Bible tells us about the church is that it's a bunch of messed up people who are only brought near to God because of Christ's work on the cross to come to us instead of us getting righteous to come to Him. And so in the end, any hypocrisy, uh, almost kind of like Daniel mentioned, is uh, it's an extent to which we just don't come in contact with the gospel and how we live our lives on a daily basis. Um, but it is, in the end, good news that we are difficult people. And our passage shows two difficult people, David and this foolish person named Nabal. And this wise, the passage says, beautiful and smart and kind of... Um, uh, she, she's, um, she's got discernment in her life, this woman, Abigail, who is figuring out how to do God's best with two really broken people who are bad at conflict. And so the discussion today really is just about dealing with difficult people. So I have one more question for you that you guys can uh, discuss with your partner, and that is, what was the last fight that you got in? Not with the person next to you, you can mention that, but just in general, was it somebody cut you off and you had like a one-sided fight that just involved you know, swearing, or was it, you know, like, what was the last fight you got? It's just in general, the last time you, like, huffed and you puffed, and you're going, like, I am mad, this is a fight. Discuss. I'm going to give you 30 seconds.
Okay, so I'm looking for answers. I'm looking for answers. Just so you can sum it up in one word, two words. Uh, what was that fight about? What was the fight about? Somebody, somebody in the back. Oh, boy. Go for it. About the <laughs> this is a godly man. Didn't throw down. This is, this is like very on theme for this passage, by the way. Uh, yeah, what was the fight about? Anyone? Motives, okay. Misread motives. Pride, okay. Great. Is this the person sitting next to my wife? Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm in trouble. Any, any, any other ones? Okay, okay. Love it. So, uh, Here's the conclusion we've come to to start our discussion. Uh, we are flawed people. The world is broken. And if God is good, he can change our lives. But uh, I don't know that we'll ever escape just the general sinful world. So we have to develop. We have to kind of flex the muscle, develop the ability to deal with difficult people, understanding that oftentimes also we are difficult people. And so this passage is one example of just how God has worked in his will for Israel, for King David, for us, uh, since there's a promise about Jesus that comes through the line of David, and so God, in the, over the arching kind of like narrative of Scripture, has to keep Israel together so that Jesus can come through Israel so that we can be saved. And so you see in this passage, God is working His will through messed up people with bad motives, with the inability to resolve conflict and communicate well. Um, and then, and that shows God's mercy and grace. So the big idea for this morning is that, um, I want to read it to you, quote it to you so we can stay on topic here. Dealing with difficult people requires four things that we'll see in the, the behavior of Abigail, this godly woman. Dealing with difficult people requires acceptance, prayer, grace, and forgiveness. And we're going to move through these very quickly um, because we've got a shorter time this morning for our sermon. So, in 1 Samuel 25, Samuel dies. This is kind of a benchmark for the nation of Israel. And then David, is because he's still fleeing from Saul, moves out into the rural areas of Israel into a desert named Moan. In that area is a wealthy, shrewd, kind of negative, foolish, ungodly man named Nabal who has lots of property in the area and is very wealthy. It goes on to list his property, his sheep, and all these things that he owns. Nabal's wife is a woman named Abigail. Abigail, it says, is intelligent and a beautiful woman. This is in verse 3 of chapter 25. But her husband was a surly and mean person in all of his dealings. It says later in the passage that Nabal's name meant foolish. So either he developed the name or he just happened along. You know, his parents just picked a really unfortunate name for the way he would behave in his life. Most likely a literary device or a name that he picked up. But he's a foolish person regardless. So David says, he, so he's in the wilderness. And then there's this wealthy man who owns lots of, um, lots of land and has this business. But he has a need. And David is ready to fill it. And so David says, uh, hey men, go to Nabal and offer our services. Because again, David's trying to take care of his men now that a few hundred of them have run away to be with David, to protect David, to live out God's will for uh, what they see as God's will with uh, David, the, to be, the, the man to be king. But David has to care for his people. 
So his idea is we're going to provide services for this wealthy man, Nabal. And we'll provide him protection. We'll take care of his sheep. We'll be ethical, godly servants to help his business. And then, uh, so David sends these men to go talk to Nabal. And Nabal's response is, who is David? Why do I care about who you are? David sends them in to, to offer his services, and he says, I hear there are a lot of people running away from their masters these days. And so he's calling David a servant, and he's saying, you're an ungodly servant because you're running away from your master. And so he sends the men back, which is a foolish decision on a business sense, but it's also a foolish decision because everyone recognizes that it's just out of pride that Nabal is saying, I don't care what service you could provide. I don't even care in a lawless wilderness world like the ancient Near East is. You could take over all my sheep, and I don't need to befriend you or even be ethical to you because... um, you know, it's so prideful because somebody could just take a sheep at any particular time. So later in verse 18, the servants of Abigail hear that Nabal is being foolish. And so they go to Abigail and they say, I'm sorry, the, yeah, the servants of Abigail come to Abigail and say, your husband is making a foolish choice here. What if we go and show grace and show some care to these men that are out in the wilderness needing food, needing water? And so Abigail does that. So um, again, to wrap up the story, or to catch up the story so far, men in the wilderness, business owner, sends the men. Nabal sends the men back to David. David then gets outraged at the, uh, at the insult of who is David. I hear he's a servant who's run away from his master. So then David tells all of his men, grab your swords. David sends 400 men, uh, some of them taking care of the cargo and some of them ready to invade to go to Nabal's property. And that's where the servants come to Abigail and tell her, we need to do something. We've got a serious matter on our hands. And that's where we pick up to our passage in chapter 25, starting in verse 23. You'll notice that um, when Abigail saw David, she quickly took off, uh, got off of her donkey and bowed down before David. And later in the passage, she says, it's my fault. I'm sorry for my husband's dealings with you. Does that sound like something that's Abigail's, Abigail's fault? No. Her husband's foolish, and now she's cleaning up his mess. David's outraged, but it's not David's, I mean, it's not even Nabal's fault that David, uh, that he doesn't want David's help. What I'm trying to get at here is that David is outraged for no good reason, because it's not on Nabal to give David money for a service that David wants to provide. David's saying, I need work, and Nabal's saying, I don't care if you need work, I don't want to hire you. And then so David's outraged, Nabal's being prideful, and then Abigail of no fault of her own, is tasked with taking a bunch of gifts to David in the middle of this, uh, this kind of geographical area where there's hills on both sides, a ravine. David is hiding, but then he sees that it's Abigail, so he comes down and talks to her. And then she gets off of her donkey and bows down to this to David, who's being ungodly at the time. And then she calls him his master. And then in the passage, you'll notice, Abigail recognizes what God's will is for David, so she says, my master, I don't want to bother you. I don't want to hurt your life with this needless bloodshed. And then David responds back to her that he says, you're right. I, uh, I was praying, God, strike me down if I don't kill all of Nabal's men in the entire encampment. So now Abigail is like peacekeeping with these two ungodly men, prideful and foolish and angry and desperate. And you'll notice in um, verse 23, that she quickly got off, verse 24, that she says, My Lord, let the blame 
be on me. So she takes on the responsibility for her husband's decision. In verse 25, it says, um, she's speaking of her husband, that he is just like his name. He's a fool and folly goes with him. And then starting in verse 26, it's just no, interesting to note that um, now since the Lord has, she says, now since the Lord has kept you, my master, she's speaking to David, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, may your enemies and all who intend to harm my master be like Nabal. She's saying anyone who wishes to harm you should be called foolish as well. Abigail knows either because of God's insight or having some sort of prophetic role in the story here, that David needs to become king in order to enact God's will, in order to deliver Israel. She obviously knows something about this because she later in the passage says that uh, the enemies of David will be thrown away like a stone flung from a sling, in reference, of course, to how David uh, slayed Goliath. So it's important to note that Abigail... Not only humble, but insightful as to God's will for David. Because if David starts killing all these people, it will disqualify him from being the king over Israel. And so she is humbling herself before this angry person, a militant, angry, prideful man, to say, remember God's will for your life. Don't disqualify yourself from the calling that God has for you. So in the end, Abigail, showing lots of wisdom and discernment and godliness, is showing us how to deal with difficult people. Like I said, those four things that we have to talk about, acceptance, prayer, grace, and forgiveness. To finish up the story, uh, Abigail goes back home after giving the uh, gifts to David and his men. She goes home to a drunk husband. He threw a party. He got really drunk. He was too drunk to even talk to her when she got home. So once he sobered up, she uh, told her husband that I talked to David. Um, He was surrounding our encampment, but all of the men, instead of invading us, just stayed there and took care of our sheep and treated all of our servants well. And then when he hears about her conversation with David, he has a heart attack and then 10 days later dies. And so Nabal, at the end of chapter 25, is dead. So one, if we're going to deal with difficult people, we have to accept that some people will always be difficult. Somebody once told me that um, once you understand that life is hard, when it gets hard, at least you're not surprised. And I found that to be true, that if you know I'm a deeply flawed sinner in a world of deeply flawed sinners, and sometimes life is difficult, that when things happen to you, and I'm not coming from a place of entitlement, where my life needs to go well, because after all, I made the right choices and got the right grades and then made the right connections, and I'm savvy and I'm smart and I'm entitled to the things that I plan to have in my life. And when I throw that out and realize I'm a flawed sinner that's only made anything in my life, uh, I've only made something of myself because of God's grace on me, then when bad things happen, it's not such a surprise because I realize in the end, my life doesn't consist of me getting exactly what I deserve. And if that were the case, all I would get is judgment. Well, the case here is that we have to accept that some people are very difficult. And part of it is, of course, realizing that from a place of humility, we are difficult people as well. And if you realize that your friends or your spouse or your family are also people who are difficult and sinners that need Jesus, then that at least doesn't surprise you when someone would question your character and someone would say, I don't trust you. And instead of saying, how dare you not trust me? You can say, well, I can understand. Sometimes I'm not a trustworthy person. So our first step is to just accept that some people will always be difficult and that chief among them sometimes ourselves. 
Second point in our passage is that we have to, like Abigail, kind of work towards God's uh, solution, not a human solution. So 1 Samuel 25, we see that Abigail um, kept David from disaster because of her choices on that day. And you look in verse 26. She says, Since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself by your own hands, and then she talks about the Lord's will. And she talks about the faithfulness of God and David fighting for the Lord. She's saying, think about the life that God has called you to. So that you don't just live in your anger. You don't just live in your immediate context. Think big picture about who God has called you to be. And if you can come in contact with God's will for your life, maybe it will give you a bit of perspective in the midst of your conflict and your anger. That's what Abigail's doing. She's saying, I want God's resolution for your life not just what you want. So can you think, in that conversation, she's finding a non-confrontational way to confront David and say, your head is off, you're angry, you got your sword in your hand ready to kill my husband. Uh, She's not just confronting him directly on, though, but she is kind of replacing confrontation by saying, but think about God's will for your life. Think about a resolution that is from the Lord. So the second thing is that we... If we're going to apply what we see in Abigail, we have to pray for God's solution. Here's my question. It's a rhetorical question, so you don't have to answer it. What would your last fight be like if you wanted God's will for the person that you fought with more than you wanted to just kind of get even? How would it change your tone? How would it change the words that you say if your chief goal was to see that person discover and live into God's will for their life instead of just winning the fight or uh, coming off as looking righteous or more holy than the other person. Okay. Uh, The third point is that we have to recognize that God has given us grace, and I just kind of want to close with this uh, for the sake of time, that God has given us grace in the midst of difficulty, and so we do uh, offer that as well. In verse 27, Abigail um, gave a gift to David. And it details all these gifts, but just to fast forward or just to give you some context, all of those gifts were really great. Some sheep, some pressed fig thing, loaf that was, I'm sure, the greatest uh, delicacy in the time. Uh, She's really showing that from her immense wealth and her husband's immense wealth, that she's willing to really sacrifice and give some grace to these people who are uh, angry and ready to invade and kill all the men in her encampment. Uh, So she shows grace. But not only grace, but forgiveness. And I kind of want to tie these last two points together. Forgiveness has to be the central part of us pursuing God. In verse 28, Abigail asks for forgiveness. She says the words, will you forgive me? Such an important part of resolving conflict. And... uh, The reason why we can forgive, the reason why we can show grace is twofold. God has shown us grace and forgiven us in Christ, and God is a righteous judge. It's oftentimes thought that if you think of God as judge, if you believe in hell, if you think of a God that judges people, that that is like a closed-minded, bigoted thing to say, or it'll cause you to want to mistreat people because you think, well, God's going to judge them. I might as well mistreat them. But the opposite is actually true. I'm reminded of... um, of the testimony of Mirzlav Volf. He's a professor at Yale, and he, in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, said the only thing in, um, in Serbia, the Serbian conflict of his childhood where people groups were 
uh, rivaling for decades, and it was family groups and ethnic groups that were killing each other, and it was a cycle of violence. The only thing that caused people to believe in peace was when they came to the Lord and believed that God would judge evil. The only thing that allowed them to put down their weapons, to put down their swords in David's instance, was to say, God can judge that person and punish that person righteously more than I ever could. And, as uh, Deuteronomy says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So the source of their pacifism, the source of their peacemaking in that conflict, was to say, I'm going to let God be the judge. And that seems like a righteous prayer. That if someone's wronged you and it's real injustice and they've really hurt you, then you can pray that prayer. God, I pray that that person would give their life to Jesus and seek forgiveness from you, Lord. And if not, I trust that you will judge them in the exact way they need to be judged. All of this has um, worked itself out. In the news this week, um, there was a jury that sentenced a former Dallas police officer to 10 years in prison this Wednesday from a shooting death of an unarmed uh, black man. Uh, She was a white police officer that showed up to what she thought was her home, and there was a a black man sitting in her living room watching TV or what she thought was her living room. She uh, immediately drew her um, firearm, and or as the police reports say, she drew her firearm and killed the man. And then the trial has been going on for some time now, uh, and then this Wednesday she was sentenced, found guilty, 10 years in prison, and, but was guilty of, of murder. And at the sentencing, the brother of the man, um, Brant is his name, shared his, his side of things. And he said this, I love you just like I love anyone else. I'm not going to say that I hope you rot in prison or die like my brother did. I personally want the best for you. This is the brother of the man who was shot, 18-year-old named Brant Jean. He pleads with her then in court, to give her life to the Lord and seek forgiveness from God. A Dallas County District Court uh, District Attorney said that this was an amazing act of healing and forgiveness that's rare in today's society. He goes on to say, I wasn't going to ever say this around my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want what's best for you because I know that's exactly what my brother would have wanted. And the best, uh, and the best, and that best would be for you to give your life to Jesus Christ. After seeking permission from the judge, uh, Tammy Kemp, Brant walked across the room and hugged the woman. And then the judge also hugged the woman. After his plea that she give her life to the Lord and seek forgiveness from God, the judge then opened the Bible that was given to her on that day. And she pointed the judge to John 3.16. And then she said, this is where you start. And that was the end of the proceedings. Let's just close with this. That is where you start. John 3.16, that God loved the world enough that he gave his son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. God is a judge, but God is forgiving and he's forgiven us. We, as gospel people, as a gospel community on mission, are those light bringers into a dark world. We are the forgivers who have been forgiven. We are the people who enact justice or who live for the good of people in our city and in our families and in our community. We're the people who resolve conflict because we have something in us that has said, God has forgiven me, a flawed, broken sinner. Let's pray.